Jesus has come and created quite a sensation. Unbelievable. I mean, the whole geographic region, not only of Palestine, but way up in the north into Syria, they're in an uproar. Jesus has called his disciples to himself. He's been itinerant preaching and teaching and going around and healing, and now crowds from all of these places are following him around. What we read is the introduction portion to the longest, fullest, continued discourse that Jesus has in all of Scripture. You know, if you have a red-letter Bible and you go through and you look at all the pages, this is the place where page after page, page is all read. It's, it's all Jesus. And because it's the longest discourse, because it has the most to say in one place, I think it's uh, incumbent on us to at least capture what's going on. And we've read the introduction. And in fact, when Jesus finished, it was noted that the crowds, when Jesus saw the crowds, then at the end when he was finished, the crowds were amazed. They were stunned. It wasn't just, wow, that was really good. Man, I'd come to hear him again. What he had to say stunned them, jaw-dropping, stunned and amazed, because truth does that. Who are you? Let's just think for a minute. Everyone in our lives, every one of us have had that moment where somebody's looked at us and said, you are. <laughs> you're such a this. You're, you're so, you are. We've had those moments. I read this week just a number of different articles. Some very painful things being said to people. You're so dumb. You're an embarrassment. One, shocking. You, you are the reason why parents have abortions. You're the worst thing that ever happened to me. You are. We hear it from people. We read it of other people. We even have a little tape going on in our own minds about who we are. Oh, you're such a loser. <laughs> you're such a fake. Or you're not so this, or you're not so that. Now, I get this. Not all of us, all of the time, are so labored in our thoughts, or are so, you know, looking inward and sad or cast down or beleaguered or troubled. We're not always all of that time, but we do have an inner voice. And what we think of, as a man thinks, so is he. What that message is, what our understanding of who we are, really dominates how we are going to live. And it's that message that I want to capture this morning because the most important message that Jesus ever delivers to in one place at one time, that longest narrative of what he had to say that captivated crowds and left them stunned and transformed the lives of his disciples begins right here. And it's you are. There are three things that we're going to look at. You are people of faith. You are people of the book. 
Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, the Word of Christ. And in our narrative here, in this story, Jesus went up on a mountain, a hillside, and sat down. Now, if you go back into the Old Testament and read all those episodes of what Moses did and how the Lord communicated to him, he went up on the mountain and he sat, and when he talked to people, he was on the side of a mountain and he would speak out. It's all theologically woven in, but just the Lord sat. And he opened his mouth and he began to teach them. What we believe, what we know about what we believe, the depth to which we have an understanding of what it means for us to be people of the faith, for us to be people of the book, very much defines how much understanding we have of who we are, what the Lord does with us and works in our hearts and lives, and how well we know Him. What we believe, what we know defines our life. Jesus here is saying, I'm going to give you truth, and I'm going to open your minds with that truth, and that's going to transform who you are. So he began to teach them. They didn't learn everything all at one time. (laughs) It wasn't everything all at once. They didn't have to scramble to capture everything. They didn't even take notes so that they could remember another time. They were wrapped with attention, captured and captivated by what Jesus had to say. And what they heard was that the lowly and the spiritual bereft and the meek and the downtrodden, the motley, the saddened, the struggling ones, those are the true people of God in whom God has awakened and made them into his kingdom people. What we know of our faith, what we know of our book, is what transforms our lives. It's by the renewing of our minds that we're made more and conformed into the image of Christ. And it is this book, this supernatural attended and superintended and God-expired book, that it's not so much that we need to know what's in it, but God has left it not of a, a record, but as a, it's a, His revelation to us. And so that in the very reading of the Word, with the power of the Spirit, who comes and attends us and gives us understanding that we get to meet and know God. It is through this agency that our understanding of Him is awakened. It is through this agency that we begin to know who He is. That we begin to know that He's with us. And this is how the Lord began His sermon. You are people of faith. He taught them truth. Let me tell you a story about John, and I'm going to weave John in and through as we move through today. John was a radio technician in northern Uganda. I met him in 2001. My first trip into Africa, my first trip into northern Uganda. And over time, over a number of years, I heard his story. 
the very few days that I knew of him then at that time, this was what emerged. He was a religious man, a mixture of learned Catholicism, mixed in with some animism, local witch doctor, tribal things, and an inkling of the prosperity gospel that, you know, if you just give enough to the right source and, and plant seeds and believe strong enough, and then everything will turn out abundantly for you. And that's who he was. He spent money, he made sacrifices, and he impoverished himself trying to find favor with God. And he was he deeply believed those things. Well, I met him because he was not only the radio technician and I was uh, going to be on the air. That was my first time on the radio. It was in northern Uganda, 5 o'clock in the morning. And I thought, who's going to listen? Well, that's when people get up. <laughs> it's when they listen. And I was to preach a sermon. And the sermon I preached was titled, The Gospel of Mephibosheth. And in that narrative, in that story, is God's grace that we're undeserving. And God finds favor in us or toward us, not because of something that's in ourselves. It's because he has simply decided to set his affection on us. And that whole doctrine of grace. And I preached that. And when I finished, this young man, John, flew out of the control booth and fell at my feet and wept. I want to know Jesus. I want to know this Jesus who brings forgiveness. I want to know this Lord that you are talking about. And so we prayed right there. And he prayed and he said he was giving his life to Christ. And we jumped back on his motorcycle and we rode through, you know, 10 or 15 miles of the bush and back to the village and back to the town. And then I was gone. We're people of the book. He was a religious man. And I've met, and you have met many, many religious people, some of them so avidly and ardently and passionately religious about something, but not about and not with truth. What we believe matters. And what he heard in a message not because it was from me, it was, it's an ordinary message, it's a plain message, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ died to save sinners. And he heard that message, and it changed his life. So we're people of faith. We're also people of hope. Book of Hebrews 11, first verse says, uh, faith is the assurance of, of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen. You know, hope is recognized in psychology as one of the most important dimensions of living. You can have success and you can have all kinds of uh, great things going on in your life. You can have many outwardly things that we would all want and appreciate, but if your life is lacking hope, you're an empty shell of a person. Hope is that, not just the feeling, hope is the certainty built on the base and the foundation of facts that we know maybe something hasn't finished yet, but it's coming. And the next portion of our scripture, those beatitudes are in fact a tremendous catalog of hope because it is the already and the not yet. 
We know that hope deferred makes the heart sick. Scripture reminds us that at one time we were separate from Christ and excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners, foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope and without God in the world. Well, if we had a, taken a survey of that crowd of people and, and wanted to find out what their deepest hopes were, they would have heard something about the kingdom and they would have understood, yeah, we want to have power because they were occupied. The Romans governed their lives. Religious, the religious elite, very few people ruled within and underneath that, that Roman dictatorship. And you were excluded. You were kept out. You were brutalized emotionally and materially and religiously. So they would have heard kingdom. Yours is the kingdom. Ah, power. I've got power. They would have heard about comfort, but resting on their hearts would have been the idea that I need life to be easy and easier. Or that they would inherit the earth. Ah, wealth and more wealth is coming my way. That they would be satisfied. Oh, that my appetites, my passions, the things that I crave, they'll be filled. They would hear about receiving mercy, but that would kind of ring in their ears that no one really could come against them. That they, no one would be offended by who they were. You know, it's all right to do anything as long as you don't hurt anyone. (laughs) They would hear that they would see God, but in a twisted sense, it would be the idea that they were justified or that they would be called sons of God, that somehow we would be good. I'm a good person. And then, again, the kingdom. Theirs would be the kingdom, that somehow they had and were in control of their destiny. But how far wrong they were that they were looking for power and wealth and position and privilege and autonomy and independence, ritual even that would equate and equal righteousness. It's not that we don't have hope. It's also what we hope in. That changes our hearts. That changes our minds. That, again, what we believe radically changes where we're going to end up. What we hope for deeply, deeply changes our lives. What Jesus taught them is the foundation of hope, the already and the not yet. That's just, just a few observations. As, we, as you look at that little grouping of blessed, 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 eight times, nine, but Eight times within a formula, and the ninth becomes part of the commentary. It's a a manner of the structure of the Sermon on the Mount. But the eight blesseds is a distilled essence of all of the rest of what comes to our ears and reading in the rest of the uh, Sermon on the Mount. And that word blessed, it's a word that means a blessing is imparted to you. It's not a feeling. It's not an emotion. I don't feel blessed. It's not about feeling blessed. 
It's about a declaration of something that's being brought to you and it's being given to you. You could not reckon it yourself. You could not take it to yourself. It's blessed. You are blessed because someone has given it to you. There are other words in Greek for blessing or fealty or goodness or loveliness coming to us. This particular one means that what you are coming into was provided by somebody else. This is not a new list of commands or a new list of virtues. This is not replacing the Ten Commandments in a more lovely way. No. We're not told that people should try to be poor in spirit or try to be meek or peacemakers or find a way to be victims of persecution. When we turn these into ideals that we strive for or strain to attain, then we've turned them into distinctions of class and superiority that the Scripture is not inviting us to. Jesus is stating that those called into the kingdom will find themselves to be such. And that is precisely That's the vortex of failure that Judaism had become and that all other religious endeavors lead us to. I can do this and I'll be loved. I can do this and I'll be validated by God. I can attain to this level and I will have grown in some way. And that's not what these Beatitudes are about. about the kingdom of heaven. It's the second thing to keep in mind, the definition of the word blessed, and then what it means for to be in the kingdom of heaven. A literal translation, with all of the grammar that is, that's woven in there, is simply, you are the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Literally, blessed are the poor in spirit, You are God's kingdom. And so we have this, the already. Now, beatitude number one, yours is or you are the kingdom of heaven. Beatitude number eight, you are the kingdom of heaven. All the rest in the middle, two to seven, are futures. Just read it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted. For yours is the kingdom of heaven. All of the others, you shall be, you shall be, you shall be, you shall be. The already and the not yet. Here's how it weaves together. The poor in spirit recognize there's there's nothing in them or of them to commend themselves to God. And they are beggars. That poor in spirit is an abject poverty that requires something and someone or the to be given, otherwise there's no relief. And this is the ground floor of their position before God. Those who are kingdom citizens have nothing to bring. As such, they grieve their sin and they mourn it. Recognizing their poverty in spirit and authentically mourning their sin, they're meek. And they approach others with gentleness. There's no boast or pride of being better than another. Considering that poverty of spirit and the mourning of sin and the meekness in character, there's a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. 
a hunger for it, a thirst for it, but the internal understanding and settled realization that we are not satisfying it completely now or slaking it in, in its totality now, but it's coming. There will be satisfaction. The profoundness of these needs lead these ones to be merciful to others as they are acutely aware of God's mercy toward them. And being sustained in these things, it serves to develop purity in heart. They're blessed with an ongoing spiritual insight to see God. I just think back to the 23rd Psalm. He leads us to green pastures. He leads us to still water. He restores our soul. He leads us in paths of righteousness. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? You are with me. That is the most profound statement in all of the faith that the God that we worship, the God that we learn about, the God that we pursue, the God that we praise, that God is with us. And it's personal. It's not somehow philosophically he has a disposition toward us. It's not about his his uh, sense of, or our sense of, well, we're under favor and we're included, so he's with us. No, the God Almighty of the universe is with you. Jesus abides with you. Theologically, we are in Christ. It's true. But theologically, Christ is with us. And it's the reading of this word that opens our hearts and our minds to understand that because it's a supernatural revelation given to us from God, not just a record of religious doings and happenings. So consequently, being so transformed by Christ's peace and seeking to promote peace around them, they are the sons of God. And to those so who identify with Jesus, the king of the kingdom, they may be persecuted. It's the already, but not yet. Because all of the despair, and I love Zach, the arrangement, the music and the arrangement of the song that you and Julie put together. I'm addicted to the lie that my thirsty soul can be quenched by earth's supply, vainly seized by my control. I'm a slave to lowly thoughts that I can't shake them. The lust of eyes and the pride of life, hardened heart that ne'er will break. We are looking, craving for something different to release us from those things and it's found in Jesus. It's found in our knowledge of the faith that comes through our familiarity, familiarity with the book. It comes into our hearts and our souls in, in the dimension of hope because hope is built on the fact and God has said, the Lord has said to the disciples here, this the kingdom is now. It's a, the verb tense, present, active, indicative. It means it's now. 
The futures are, it has begun, but it won't see its final fulfillment. And all of the struggling we do and the sadness we have and the bitterness or the regret or the wondering. I know I used to sit in church going, I wonder if everybody else around me feels the same way I do, that I don't get this. Slowly, that was leached out of my life and replaced by, I know in whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which he has delivered to me against that day. John, let me tell you about John in northern Uganda. When Don and I first got there, we had no idea in 2001 that they were in the middle of the grips of the worst insurgency bush war that the world may have ever known. And most of the world still doesn't know about it. Some of you who ever saw the video Coney 2012, I think it was 2012, that's where we were. Uh, He had had family members kidnapped, children, boys, nieces, nephews, stolen and made into brides or, or soldiers. The area was devastated. One of the things that struck Don and I, especially in the villages, where there was no art. There was, there was nothing of beauty. There were no flower gardens. There, was, there were no paintings. There was no, nothing of beautification because for 20 years they had been living under the oppression of the LRA, the, the Coney rebels. They had been living under the oppression and the indifference of their national government. They were a tribe that was out of favor and there were government spies and there were Coney spies and just to the north of that northern Uganda was Sudan, South Sudan, which was at war with northern Sudan. And northern Uganda also became a place of reconnoitering for stealing supplies and food and, and, and forcing people into the battles. And that's where we got to. The deprivations physically, spiritually, emotionally. He had very little to look forward to. He had no relief from his suffering, no satisfaction from his, the religious beliefs he had until he and I met in that radio studio. And he lived, had previously lived as so many others have lived. Get what you can, take what you can, try and get something out of it. He had no hope. He felt deeply, as was read from the scriptures earlier from Isaiah, my cause is hidden from the Lord. I met him after that episode in that little studio. I met him a year later. We had returned to northern Uganda. We had learned a little more about what was going on there, and I got to sit and talk with him. and, and He shared these things. But he knew he had been brought into the kingdom and his life began to change. He had hope, hope in real things, hope in true things. Nothing around him changed. In fact, it had gotten worse. But everything had changed in him because he lived for Christ. 
He had been introduced to this one Jesus. He had learned more of who Jesus was. When Jesus began to teach him, it was elementary, rudimentary things. And then the little deeper things of life, that, or the deeper things of Scripture began to change who he was. And he was one of the very few people that even that year that we met that, could, that had joy. Life around us, this world around us, just think of the news that goes on around us even now and even today and the terrible nature of human nature and the ravages that it has upon us, the terrible nature of created nature, of disease and sickness and sin and sorrow and death and then that's outside of us and then inside of us, loneliness and sadness and sorrow and grief and pain. We're people of hope. Something's already begun in your life. It's here, it's now, and it's you. You are the church, and you are people of hope for what has already begun and for what is yet to be finished. But you are also people of love. But now, I read this earlier, faith, hope, love, abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. I get that in the imagery of Jesus looking at his disciples and saying, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Can you imagine? We know a little more about the disciples because of what comes later numerous times. Their their infighting, their sense of privilege and betrayal of Jesus and running from Jesus. You are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. You know, salt, a lot of uses in Scripture for salt, for that one word, salt. And it signifies all through, there's numerous things, numerous references, but it just has three things. It signifies eternal blessing and peace. It signifies purification. And it differentiates between those who have the gospel in them and those who do not. There's no instruction as how to become salt. They are salt. Salt is what distinguishes the covenant people. Salt is precious. Today, salt is cheap, but at one time it was most valuable. We get our word salt from the uh, Latin salaria. A man was worth his salt. Means he was paid, and Roman soldiers were often paid in the currency of the day, which was salt. It's valuable. Salt preserves. It's used worldwide to preserve food, foodstuffs and fish and all kinds of things. You salt it. Salted pork, salted fish, salted beef. It preserves. Stops putrefaction and rottening. Salt heals. You ever cut yourself and, you know, you've got that Band-Aid on and for weeks and weeks it's there? But if you go to the ocean a few times and have a swim, it's gone pretty quickly. Salt heals. It also seasons. It's used that way in the Scripture. Job, Job talks about put a little salt on your food. It'll taste better. Salt causes thirst. It activates the need to drink more. But also, salt is permanent. It must do what it does or it cannot be what it is. 
the usages throughout the scripture and how it's applied to our lives and why it matters that those who are identified as covenant children of God, you are salt, is that we season the world around us. We stop putrefaction. We bring healing. We bring taste. That's who you are. You're people of love. Light. At the beginning, beginning of the biblical narrative, the Bible, or light spring forth, springs forth as the first act of creation. Let there be light. And at the end of the story, the light of God obliterates all traces of darkness. There shall no longer be any night. They shall not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God shall illumine them. And light in the Bible, it's an easy metaphor to understand. It's an easy picture to grasp or an easy symbol. They're not like light. They are light. You are not like a lamp. You are a lamp of God. Light exposes what's in the darkness. Light lights the way. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. Literally tying little oil lamps to their feet to walk so that there's just enough light ahead of them for them to see. Light expels fear and gloom. There will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea. On the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Light overcomes darkness. It fills it. Light saves. The Lord is my light and my salvation. These two images of salt and light serve to inform us in this way. Your saltiness impacts your community in everyday life. Your saltiness impacts those around you. Your saltiness impacts your family and your neighbors. Your light serves to bring us, bring you into mission to the world around us with the truth of the word of the gospel. We become that which seasons our territory, we become that which lights the way for others. John was salt and light. Faith, the truth of the gospel set him free from that prison of lies. Hope returned to his spirit and it radiated in his soul that while circumstances were the most difficult and challenging, he knew he could trust God. And love for others His being salt and his being light in one of the most dark places that you can imagine became just who he was and what he did. He went back to school. He earned an education to become a pastor. He founded schools and orphanages to help train people that the region had been devastated of. No one had skills. People were living in government camps and being fed every day. They had forgotten how to farm. They had forgotten how to live. Darkness of evil had so taken over them. They had no truth. They had no hope. He became truth for them. He became their hope, and he brought seasoning and light to their experience. My friends, 
You're the church. You are a people of truth. You are a people of hope. You are a people of love. Go out and be salty. Go be lights. God bless you.